The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in October 2008. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio on the American Theatre Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Greg Edelman has been nominated four times for Tony Awards, first time for City of Angels, then for Anna Karenina, 1776 The Revival, and The Revival of Into the Woods. Other shows that Greg is noted for, Cabaret, Passion, Wonderful Town, and currently in A Tale of Two Cities. Greg, welcome to Downstage Center. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here. Well, you are playing uh, Dr. Alexander Minette in A Tale of Two Cities, the musical version of Charles Dickens' Tale of Two Cities, which just opened recently and is now running in New York. How did the show itself come about, and how do you get into it? The, the show has a kind of a long history. Yeah, I don't think we have that much time to tell <laughs> the entire history of, of this show's gestation. It started years ago. Funnily enough, years ago when I was doing Les Mis on Broadway, there was a gentleman, Ron Sharp, who was in the show, and he he was sort of the understudy uh, Jean Valjean, and I play Javert. So once a week, I would you know do the show with him. And um, one day, you know, after we were finishing a show, he said, you know, I'm, I'm working on the show. I'm trying to get this show produced. It's a musical version of A Tale of Two Cities. And I was like, really? Well, good luck with that. <laughs> it was one of those kind of things. And, you know, years later, I hear that they're doing, you know, like this big concert presentation. And then years later, they were doing a production outside of town uh, down in uh, Florida. And, uh, you know. He he did the job. He got this thing to Broadway, and it's amazing. It's a, you know, he had no other producing connections. He just said, "I'm going to put on a show," and he gathered up the money, and so here we were, you know. And so about six months ago, uh, you know, they asked me if I wanted to do it, and um, I started to. Re- I, of course, I looked at the script, and then I read the novel again, and I was like, "Oh, this is an amazing character. I love this character," and. Uh, you know, I signed on. I thought they had musicalized my scenes beautifully. Jill Centoriello, who wrote the book and lyrics and script, uh, you know, book, lyrics, music, everything, wrote the whole thing, you know, mm-hmm. even the stage directions. And, uh, you know, I, I signed on, and I, I'm, I'm glad I did. And it, it ran first down in Florida, as you say. It had a run outside of town. Mm-hmm. I, I, you Way know, out. I, well, yeah, really, <laughs> out of town, almost out of country. But... Uh, and I don't even know how long that run was. I think it was like two months mm-hmm. and a full production that was very successful for them. And some of the cast members, quite a few actually, came to New York with it. So, mm. You made a comment about your scenes played beautifully. Obviously, when there's an out-of-town tryout, creators learn things about a show. How much was the show still in being adjusted by the time you came into it? Um, not much. There was some things that they brought that they thought they were going to have to cut, and as it turned out, they ended up having to cut some things. Uh, one of those was the first song in the show, which, which I would I sang. Um, actually, that part, that thing that I sang, uh, which was a like an opening prologue thing in the uh, Bastille, um, which I thought was very important to have, and I don't no longer sing it, but maybe on the album. Um, <laughs> but he, he, they cut that, and they cut a, a, a number sort of by their. Uh, the, a grave digger body, you know, body, what is it, Gra- a grave robber number. Uh, and they cut that number. It sort of stopped the narrative of the show. Um, and I think that was it. I mean, the show really, they had done their homework down there. So by the time they closed down there, they really felt that they knew what they had. And they were able to get a lot of money, you know, a lot of backing from that production. So I think that they really felt like they were going to bring that 
that production in. They thought they had something there. So. so let me ask you, you were opening the show with a number. What's the conversation when somebody comes to you as an actor, and how do they tell you you're no longer opening the show? <laughs> well, that's very, that's very funny. We actually have uh, our director, Warren Carlyle, he is like the nicest man on Broadway and he's just, you know, he's got this lovely English accent and he's a very sweet guy and he was like, you know, we're, we're going to try something a little different and, and he just didn't want to break my heart. He didn't know how I was going to respond and, you know, I was like, oh, you're kidding me. Oh, and I was that, I had that response. He said, well, we just want to try it and of course in, in that Broadway. You never saw it again. <laughs> in Broadway fashion, it never came back in. But that doesn't mean I didn't try to get it back in. I think almost every day I would come up to him and say, you know what this opening, because they kept changing the prologue night after night. We must have had seven or eight different versions of the prologue after my number had been cut. And so um, they would say, we're going to try this tonight. We're going to try that tonight. I said, you know what would work here? What really would work here is if I sang something, you know, that would be nice. And they were like, oh, you're so funny, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and then I started promising him certain amounts of money if he could have find a way to have an opening number with me singing and no amount. You never hit the right I mark. never yeah. hit the right amount of money. Maybe I was talking to the wrong guy. I should have talked to the producer. <laughs> so uh, anyway. Well, if they keep changing things from night to night, how do you as an actor deal with that? You, obviously, you have to learn a lot of new lines, new moves. new. Is, is that difficult for you to have to handle changes well, it's, during rehearsal? It's certainly exciting. Uh-huh. And for me, uh, I, you know, I've been very fortunate enough to work on Broadway, uh, to do re- newly written shows as well as revivals that are having changes put into them. I find that the most exciting time. I mean – until you have your three weeks in the studio and getting the show tacked and all that. But once you get in front of an audience, you know, you add the audience, which is that last piece of the puzzle, which is very exciting. But then, you know, you come in for rehearsal in previews. You come in for rehearsal at noon every day. And if you're just coming in to move upstage one foot or relight something, it's actually kind of boring for the actors. But if they come up to you with like five pages and say, this is going in tonight – it's really exciting. Mm-hmm. You, you know, it's totally, you know, it's, it's like, a, you know, putting on a show tonight when we're going to do something you've never said or sung ever before. And it's going to be in front of 1,200 people are paying 100 bucks a ticket. How do you like that? It's like exciting for me. I love it. So this, the preview period is very exciting. I think some people might not think that. You know, they think they're thrown a little bit by some changes. Their performance in general can get, you know, a little wonky because the through line gets screwed up. But I... Think I don't think I've had many changes over the years that have really made my performance wonky. I once had like 15 pages of changes in City of Angels thrown at me in one day, and it was like, sure, bring it on. You know, you know, it's exciting when people like you know, uh, uh, Larry Gelbart says, "I've written you some new lines. You want those new lines, you know." So. It's also exciting for the audience to be in during previews because it's the show as it's being developed, as it's evolving before it gets locked in for opening night, so they get to see a show. In gestation, basically. It's, it's right. And especially when you have really good writers who are, you know, their idea of a throwaway number or a number that they're not sure is going to work is very exciting to see for most people, especially people who are theater lovers, you know. I mean, I still look back years ago. Now, this wasn't a number per se, but I look back years ago when I saw um, uh, the original production of uh, Merrily We Roll Along. And uh, I'll never forget watching this. I got free tickets because I, I don't know. I think I was doing a Vita at the time. Was that the same era? A Vita? Right, yeah. yeah, I was doing a Vita and Hal Prince. That was his show, too. They're both his shows. So he got us free tickets. So we went in there. And there's some big number that was like a party somewhere in a Hollywood Hills party. And there was this, this swimming pool that had blue construction paper 
over the lip of it so to make the, the pool water. And at one point, someone got thrown into the pool and the paper ripped and they go through the ripped paper and it looked really... <laughs> really bad, you know. And I was like thinking, oh my God, that's terrible. And of course, down the road, I asked somebody like three days later, I say, are they still doing that bit where they throw the people in the paper pool? Like, no, no, that got cut, you know. <laughs> so, you know, it is it is fun to go and see Broadway shows in previews. To make a confession, despite the fact that I'm an English major, I never read Tale of Two Cities. I read the Classics Illustrated comic book when I was 11. <laughs> so I'm curious, as you talk about changes coming in since you reread the book how closely does the show follow the original book or or would more studious english majors feel that liberties have been taken with it well you know it's funny we've actually had librarians English professors at the stage door at the end of the show who are so excited to have seen it that they wanted to get some autographs. So I'll I'll say to them, "What do you think? You know, how how faithful was it?" Because obviously I know where the changes are, uh, but on a one-time viewing when the orchestra's playing and everyone's overacting, you know, you kind of like, <laughs> "Do you see it or don't you see it?" And they they all are saying it's pretty uh, pretty faithful. I know where the changes are, and there are some changes that are quite, you know, quite market differences to the to the piece. But um, some of the changes are to sort of telescope it theatrically so we can tell this narrative. And some of the changes are to somehow, you know, finish off a character's arc, like when Madame Defarge, you know, is no longer with us anymore. I don't want to tip my hand in case anybody doesn't know what the plot is. But, you know, they, they wanted to end that. They wanted to sort of like end the Madame Defarge and Defarge relationship. And so he sort of shows up after she's, you know, expired. That doesn't happen in the novel. You know, the, Charles Dickens is much more interested with getting the getting everybody out of the country at that point. And, uh, but we wanted to make a change there. So, you know, that's, that's one change. There's many changes like that. But um, it really is to sort of make it theatrically you know, somehow compacted down so that you can do it in two and a half hours or else you'd end up with um, Nicholas Nickleby, you know, which was brilliant. Uh, you know, I, I could sit through, what, what was that, six hours? I could sit through six hours of that again. But you couldn't necessarily sing through six well, hours that would be, of it. But that would be an interesting idea, wouldn't it, to somehow do some sort of long... I, has there ever been something that long, you know, sort of like a two-evening experience of musical? I don't think there has. I don't think so. You know, they'll they'll do like a long like a long Shakespeare experience, or like I said, we said Nicholas Nickleby. But that might be cool to have some sort of really long piece that people can come. But no, that's the most just might me. be is if somebody put together all three of the falsetto musicals. But that's still not six or seven hours. That's right. But, uh, that's right. But that would be that would be tough. How much in the creation of the show do you think? There was an attempt to model this on the sweep and spirit of Les Mis, given the so many people involved in the show, actors, the producers, were part of Les Mis. Oh, in, in terms of it, it's in comparison? Terms of the overall shape of it. Were, were they going for the new Les Mis? Was that ever spoken of? That was never spoken of. In fact, they really were very conscious to say, you know what? We know, you know, that people are going to make the comparison, but the, the the way this show is going to, you know, live or die is not by being the second Les Mis. It's going to be its own creature. It's it's more romantic, you know. Um, it really focuses. They use 
um, Sidney Carton is sort of like, a, once Sidney Carton comes into the narrative, they sort of use him as like a focal point to sort of, you know, bring the, all, you know, the narrative sort of through his eyes in a way. And um, because of that and his feelings for you know, Lucy, my daughter, it really takes on a, a much more of a romantic, you know, evening. And of course, Les Mis is not romantic. I mean, there is romantic moments, but it's a different feel, you know, I would think. That's my take on that. But I think that um, if you would speak, if you would interview any of those folks on the creative staff, they would say, no, we weren't going for another Les Mis. I think just the musical style that you need to write in to portray that period of history, there's going to be similarities in just your tonality and, you know, the romantic sweep of, you know, crowds rising up against, you know, the people holding mm-hmm. them down. You're going to have similarities there. But uh, they really were conscious to find a way to tell it so it didn't strike too many similar notes. Hmm. Well, as we began, I read off a long list of uh, shows. I didn't even scratch the surface of shows you've been in. So currently, A Tale of Two Cities, how did you get from where you are now, where did you begin everything? You were born in Chicago. I was. You grew up in Skokie. But yes, how did you know that? My gosh, it's like all, it's all online now, isn't <laughs> Everything's it? Everything's out there. Oh you, my you, you're, gosh. Your whole life is exposed. I'm <laughs> so glad I lived and carefully. And sometimes the information's even correct. <laughs> exactly. Born in Denmark. What? Uh, no, I, uh, I grew up in Skokie, and uh, I ended up going to Northwestern University. I uh, wanted to go to University of Illinois. Everyone in my neighborhood seemed to go to North University of Illinois. Uh, also, my high school girlfriend was going to be going to University of Illinois. And um, my mother put the kibosh on that by putting down a non-refundable deposit to Northwestern University. <laughs> and she let me know that. <laughs> and so I, uh, I ended up going to Northwestern. And I was really glad I did. Very early on, uh, a whole other part of my life that most people don't know, I, I was a, I was a, a writer, a songwriter. And... Uh, Northwestern's well known for um, a show called the WAMU Show, which is one of the great, you know, college ver- musical variety shows that uh, have been around for years and years. It's over seventy-five years old. The show, and Akin to um, say the Triangle shows down at Princeton or Mask and Wig at yes, at University exactly. Of I think a little less satirical. It's a little more sort of classical, sort of. Broadway, you know, big scale, almost like a Ziegfeld Follies kind of thing with, you know, comedy sketches and, you know, big numbers in one and kind of things like that. So, um, and so, and I wrote a lot in high school and uh, I found myself very quickly when I was in college, I was playing, before I even started my, my fall quarter at Northwestern, I was playing all the music I had written for the gentleman who was the head of the uh, WAMU show. And I found myself on the fast track to writing for all their shows. And it was very exciting. And uh, and on top of that, of course, then I, I went into all the, the other parts of, you know, that the university had to offer with musical theater and uh, in those days, you didn't have musical theater majors. I was a theater major, and I was doing my, you know, Pinter and my Chekhov and all that, along with, you know, doing my one musical a year. You but you, you were no stranger to Broadway musicals because I read as a child, you sat on your mother's lap while she played show tunes from a half a dozen LPs that she had. Well, that's true. Oh, my up. gosh. You are just... And then the, this is... I'm thinking back on what <laughs> else you might you mention. you can do a lot from Flower Drum Song, actually. <laughs> actually, yes. I love Flower Drum Song. You know, you do a mean 
Jack Sue for you any second. <laughs> but, um, oh, my gosh. Yeah, we actually, you know, it's it's one of those uh, very typical stories, although it sort of took place in suburban Chicago. We didn't have a lot of money at all. I mean, we lived in a one-bedroom apartment. My brother and I, we shared a bedroom, and my mom slept in the living room with her mother on two separate beds in the living room. I mean, it was it was not, you know, there was not a lot of money to go around. So we had an old record player, and she had like five records, and three of those were, did you have, do you know what other songs, other other records there were? I'm trying to recall. Here, here, here paper shuffling. Well, they we go through. Through. paper shuffling. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was, we, Camelot was, is that one? Of no, we no. didn't have Camelot. We had, uh, we had um, Take Me Along. Uh-huh. Oh, my gosh. My mom would love Jackie Galisa. She would go crazy. And um, and we had the Gypsy. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, of course, the original, Bethel. And we had Gigi. And we had Flower Drum Song. And she did love Jackie Gleason because we had music for lovers only, Jackie Gleason. <laughs> and Errol Garner. And I remember listening to Errol Garner play the piano. And ever so often on the recordings, you hear him go, uh... <laughs> and I'd be like, what is that? And my mom'd say, yes, he's making that noise while he's playing. And I'd be like, oh, that's cool. He must be talented. You know? <laughs> but I would sit on her lap and we would sing, you know, like Little Lamb and, you know, Take Me Along and, uh, you know, Rose, I love you, but don't count your chickens, you know. <laughs> and it's, it's just crazy. And to this day, I'll like, I won't do it here. But, you know, I like to sort of, that's where I learned to love to hum along with overtures and, like, try to imitate all the instruments in the overture. Because I would listen to the overtures. It was so exciting to me, you know. Hmm. And I think that's where I got my, you know, my early love for writing music because it was so exciting. You know, in these days, you know, in those days, you weren't able to, like, you know, TV shows. There was no such thing as DV, you know, um, VHS tapes of things. You'd see something once, and that would be it. You'd go to a movie, you'd see it once, and you wouldn't see it again for, what, two years, you know? Three years, if it, if that lucky. So, um, to have a record that you could play over and over and over again is something that exciting. I really memorized it, you know, from... And did you ever do any of those shows? You high school, college, or anywhere else? The shows you grew up on? Um... I'm trying to think. No, I didn't. I did a whole series of concerts in Europe with some symphonies, and I, I ended up, you know, when they were saying, what do you like to sing? I said, with a big symphony? I think I'd like to sing Gigi. And so I did the whole, you know, that whole, that whole big, you know, that whole enormous symphonic section of, you know, Gigi, am I full without a mind? And it's amazing to hear, you know, to be standing in front of a 20, 30 strings just playing that learner and low music. It's really exciting. It's really, really nice. So before we move on with the acting career, what happened to the songwriting? How, why, did, why did you not pursue that? I, you know, it's one of those things where um, I started working with such talented people so early on, such great writers, that I just was like, uh, uh, I can't write as good as them. And I really stopped writing because of that, you know. I was thinking, well, what would I like to do, you know? Well, I'd like to act Stephen Sondheim's music. He's a, you know, it's it's not the cliche of, you know, saying only Stephen Sondheim, but I've been very lucky to work with people like Cy Coleman and, and of course, Steve and Julie Stein. And, you know, you, you if you spend time, and I'm sure you guys have, you spend time in front of these guys and they sit down at the piano and this this gift just pours out of them. You're thinking, well, obviously that's not what I have to offer, you know. <laughs> so I just sort of moved on, you know. So, as you said, it wasn't a musical theater program, though you were in musicals at Northwestern. 
when you got out of school, did you do the, you just said cliche, did you do the cliched thing and just say, I'm going to New York, baby? Um, not at first. Um, my senior year of college, they, they gave us, they excused us from classes anytime we would go and audition for professional things in the city, of which would be Chicago. And, you know, of course, a college senior is going to take every opportunity to miss a class. So, you know, of course, sometimes I would say I had an audition, but I'd end up at a Cubs game. But <laughs> most of the times I'd audition for stuff, I got absolutely nothing. I was really kind of like, oh, man, what's going to happen? What am I going to do this fall? And then I got cast in Evita, which was the Chicago company of Evita. And I did that. They played for a year in Chicago. You know, that was a great run. And then we toured a bit. I went to Washington for like four months and Philly for three months. And after that, I was offered a show in Europe to play Tony in West Side Story, which I had actually done twice already by that point. So I was thinking, oh, this would be great. I could get out of the show and all that. So I quit the show. And, you know, I called them and said, okay, so I've quit the show. And when should I show up, you know, wherever? And they were like, oh, Greg, there's been a terrible mistake. And so I quit Evita. And I didn't have West Side Story. And my girlfriend in the Vita had dumped me for a prop man about 36 hours after I left the company. So I was like, oh, I'm so depressed. And I thought, I'm going to move to New York because I couldn't possibly get any more depressed than I already am. And so I just got on the airplane and flew to New York and, you know, moved into a guy's apartment. I lived on his couch, you know, in, in the village. And... Uh, and this is where the story takes a turn for the you know the better. I was uh, <laughs> waiting for a, an acting class to start. I decided to you know jump into some acting class as soon as I got to New York. And I'm there on Broadway and Fifty Third, uh, I believe it is. And I'm waiting there. And the dance captain for Evita walks by, and he said, "Greg, what are you doing here?" I said, "Well, I quit the show and uh, West Side Story, and I didn't get West Side Story, and so now I'm here." And he says to me, "Well, would you be interested in being the swing in the Broadway company of Evita?" And I was like, well, uh, yeah, sure. He said, okay, sure. And the short version is I got the part, you know, and I had a job. I was here like six days, and I got a, you know, I was the swing. And uh, I was very fortunate, of course, and very excited. And so I did that for a year. And that's kind of how I got into New York. Hmm. Yeah. And if you hadn't met him on the street corner, then why? <laughs> yeah, who what, knows what, what would happen? Yeah, what was plan B? Plan B. Was there ever a plan B? Yeah. You know, when you're young... You don't think in terms of plan A, plan B, plan C. You're like, well, here I am. Let's see what, you know. <laughs> you know what I mean? You just, you don't think that far ahead. So after Avita, then what? what then I, I did an off-Broadway show. I uh, I got a, an agent and uh, I did actually a showcase. In those days, we had showcases. I don't know if there really are showcases anymore. Sort of. It's kind of like LOA or something now. It's called a little differently here now letter of agreement but I got an agent and uh, I got an off-Broadway show called Weekend which wasn't very successful but you know I just started and then you know did the you start auditioning for anything that comes along I tried to avoid doing chorus jobs because I didn't want to do that and uh, I got lucky I got some lort jobs working with a lot of people uh, musicals mainly, but a lot of people that I ended up working with on Broadway years later. I did shows out of town with Lonnie Price and Randy Graff and, you know, just a whole slew of people like that. Beth Fowler, you know, it's it's amazing. Well, your first new Broadway production, not a new show, it was a revival after having gone into mm-hmm. Evita, was an ultimately short-lived production of Oliver. Oh, that's right. With the with the original Fagan, Ron Moody, yeah. and and Patty Lupone, Patty Lupone as as Nancy. 
that production did not run very long. And oh, it was didn't. it was the production problematic, mm-hmm. or was the world just not ready for Oliver at that moment? You know, that's that's funny you should ask that. I I, I think uh, it was summertime, family time in New York. Why wouldn't Oliver work? It was the the star from the movie. He was great in the show. You know, I'm not going to say that. Uh, there were problems certain places, but there were certain problems in, pla- pra- in places. But um, there were some, you know, creative problems. It wasn't actors at all, by the way, in case you're thinking I'm hinting at some people. But there was no actor problems. It was a great cast, and um, and we all wanted to do really well. But uh, I think there was some chemistry issues. But regardless, it just sort of went down the tubes. You would think the material would just take it up, you know. Also, the production was pretty much, I believe, the original set. There, It hadn't been rethought at all, you know. I remember when I did the revival of uh, Cabaret with Joel Grey, and, um, oh, I'm having a blank now, but I did the revival of Cabaret, and that was in, like, 87, I guess. Joel Grey and Werner Klemperer and Regina Resnick and Allison Reed and um, you know, it was kind of like a remounting of the original production, actually pared down a little bit because Joe Masteroff, who wrote the book for Cabaret as well as She Loves Me, he's sort of like my adopted dad. And uh, he told me, he said, yeah, you know, the original designer, I'm forgetting the original designer. Was it a Boris Aronson Thank design? you. Thank you. It was Boris. And he said, you know, Boris had added some little touches that really made... That you know the, the the black box look come alive. You know there were some like trolley lines or telegraph wires that were strung, and we didn't have little touches like that. But anyway, years later, and we had a nice run on Broadway. Years later, of course, Sam Mendes' production comes along, and it took the you know everybody by storm. I think mainly because, of course, the you know the the, the, the actors were wonderful, but it had sort of been rethought a little bit, as opposed to we're just going to remount what we did twenty, thirty years earlier. Hmm. And I think you have to do that on some level. You have to just sort of take it. You don't even have to turn it on its head. They didn't do that. They just sort of took you know they took a starting place and they sort of extended it. They extrapolated out of what was on the page already. So. Hmm. Well, yeah. we're gonna, I'm going to jump out of chronology then because it begs the next question. A number of years later, you did the revival of Into the Woods. That was being <clears throat> rethought, I guess, in the way you're talking about, even though it was the original creatives. Is that true? That's very true. But that's also a real – that's a reflection of James Lapine and Stephen Sondheim. Um, I uh, – you know, they would be like, oh, forget. Don't worry about what – this actor did or that actor did in the original, you know, sooner or later you would say, well, that's really not how you said it before. And he'd say, I don't care what I said before. We're doing the show basically from scratch. And he would rewrite some things here and there. But, you know, they didn't rewrite it as much, but they really wanted us to do whatever we thought would be right. And of course, you know, he would edit us. James is a big editor. And so he'll tell you if he, you'll, you'll know very quickly if he doesn't like what you're doing. Um, and, and that just goes even, uh, that follows down through the recent revival of Sunday in the park. Um, James had talked to me about auditioning for it. And, uh, when he said, you know, 
it's funny because uh, I was somewhere working on something and he called me and said, so you want to come? I think I was working with him on another workshop and he came in to me and he said, so you're going into audition? I said, yeah. Well, you know what? You don't want to do this part and this part, you know, just because it's the slots that I that I came up with originally. Those were totally arbitrary slots. So I want you to audition for Jules, uh, which is the uh, sort of the agent slash artist in the first act and I want you to audition for I'm forgetting the character's name now but he's sort of the technician who helps you know um, George in the second act and he said you know I want you, that would be a good opposite for you and then, and I was like really you want me to do that he said yeah so I went in and I auditioned for it and of course <laughs> you know I thought I did very well and James called me like a month later I'm so sorry my idea totally backfired and uh, the gentleman who was the director of the revival which I'm forgetting now too I'm forgetting all these names but anyway he was he didn't clean to that, he was holding on to the roles, the the sort of slots that James and Steve had come up with, and uh, James was the one, even in that revival, that he didn't have much to do with. He was like saying, "No, let's break the mold. Let's go with it. You don't have to, you don't have to hold true to any mold that I've set up before." He's they're very creative in that, you know, in that respect. This sort of begs a, a broad question rather than than specific shows. So many actors uh, and actresses coming up in musicals have to do lots of revivals before even sometimes they get the opportunity to do new work. So how do you approach all of this material that has been done so many times before and frankly you've in some cases sung along to the cast albums since you were a kid? Mm-hmm. How do you how do you keep it fresh even when it's not being rethought? Well, that's that sort of brings to mind Wonderful Town because Wonderful Town was a show that it hadn't been seen much. I mean, I had done like a recording of it in London where I played a different part. But I think, you know, when you have names on the, on the, on the, you know, the record jacket that you really respect, you, I think you have a tendency to say, I'm going to sit back and I'm going to see what's on the page. You know, some actors, I have real problems with this. Some actors come into rehearsal and within 10 minutes of rehearsal, they're saying, you know, I don't know. That sounds awfully old. I don't know whether I do. And they really want to, like, start changing stuff. But when it's Compton and Green, maybe you should take a moment and think about what they wrote because they were pretty darn funny, you know. And so I, my first step is always to be respectful of what's there and, you know, give it a fair reading and a fair hearing. And I, that means don't just read it at the table once. You've got to stand up. You've got to march it through its paces and see if it plays well. And you would be surprised how well some of these shows play, even though they haven't been done, you know, quite, you know, very, very often. And so that's what I do. I try to be respectful first and then very gingerly, you know, because, again, going back to James Lapine, he taught me a lot about... Do small changes, small little, you know, actors always joke about, oh, they, they changed an and or they changed a but or they changed a so you think, you know, that kind of thing. But those changes make a lot of difference, especially in a musical when, you know, books have to be very minimalistic so that you can kind of get to the song, but they still have to cash in emotionally and comedically and all that good stuff. So I'm a big believer in being respectful first and then go from there. Well, as Howard mentioned, you've been involved in a lot of revivals. You went into Anything Goes after it started at Lincoln Center with Patti LuPone as Rena Sweeney. You went in as Billy Crocker mm-hmm. as a replacement. Then a little bit later, you went into Cabaret when that was being revived by uh, 
I, um, was that roundabout? Who's doing that? No. No, this was, uh, the, was, Prince was the, the How Prince Revival. The Prince Revival back in 87, 88, that area. You went in as the lead Clifford Bradshaw. Then you got to originate a role of Stein in City of Angels, the, right. uh, the Cy Coleman David Zippel musical. Right. And you were nominated for a Tony for that. So this was really your first role that you got to create from scratch. Yeah, that's true. Especially in that on that large canvas of Broadway. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about on, yeah, on Broadway. Yeah, true. first major role in a Broadway theater, and what turned out to be a big, big show, Tony-winning show. Yeah. So, what was that experience like for you now to be able to create that role? Well, um, it's funny. I, I was, uh, f- you know, it'd be surprising to hear, but for me, it was frustrating. Um, it's it's a. You know, I previously had played a writer in cabaret and here i was playing another writer and you know the whole device of using writers in broadway musicals it's kind of hard on the actor whoever's playing the writer because you can't in a way break out of what that mold is of what a, or what the expectation is that a writer is which is somebody who's sort of in his head and, and that's not very theatrical is it i mean you want to see his creations jump around on stage you know so many times i would be told you know uh, michael blakemore who i absolutely adore you know I'm, everyone agrees he's a brilliant director you know he would say you know greg uh, I, I i don't know i remember he's an author okay he's not a leading man in a broadway musical you know you have to go yeah okay and i'd have to back it off a little bit you know um and it was sort of frustrating because there was a lot of fun stuff going on around me, but the character had to sort of do his 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 chore there. And, and of course, I was young, and so you know you're so anxious to make a splash when you're young, and that was sort of created uh, you know a, a period for me where I had to calm down and just do my work and trust the people around me because those were amazing people, an amazing creative team of Cy Coleman and David Zippel, although that was David's big first show too. But, you know, Larry Gelbart and Michael Blakemore, you had to trust those people and say, if they say this, then I probably should do that, you know, do it. And so it was a real learning, you know, a learning experience for me. Um, but I enjoyed it. And, of course, Jim Naughton, uh, he, he really took took me under his wing, and he was a great big brother to me, and he was a totally cool guy, and we had a good time, you know. But like I said also, um, I worked with Randy Graff out at Cincinnati Playhouse, like, I don't know what, 15 years earlier, 10 years earlier, and here we were on Broadway together creating, show, uh, you know, new roles together. And so that was exciting to have old friends there too. But uh, that first big experience can many times actually be a very frustrating one because you it, it's it's not you know there's a it's 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 just frustrating because you have expectations but you know you're you have to sort of be a part of the team and it's those expectations sometimes get disappointed you know they songs get cut scenes get cut you know um, and it's 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 kind of can be sad you know yet with new material you also have more of an opportunity to impact kind of the reverse of what we were just talking about, what other actors will inherit, you know, n- certainly in a show like City of Angels, for years down the line. Exactly. Was, exactly. There, was there anything in particular that that you were able to say, I do think it needs this, and they said, okay? Yes, there there was. After we had our first big run-through of the show and the room was filled with all the, you know, the 50 people who show up, you know, I, I had said, I think I'm really out of the flow of this show. And... Uh, uh, Larry Gelbart went off, and he wrote me a lot of new stuff. It was pretty impressive. I was very, you know, because Larry Gelbart was sort of, 
you know, he's the master wordsmith. So, you know, when he did that, I, I felt really, I felt like I was listened to. And that really, when you're that young and you're around these experienced people, it makes you feel great, you yeah. know. And when someone like Michael Blakemore would say, you did a great job, it, it really made you feel good. You know, I think also part of my what you're hearing in my voice was those early days when, you know, even though you want to be there and you think you're talented enough to be there, you know, that first time, it's just so, it's so scary, you know. I think there are some people in the world who don't have those kind of doubts, but I think most normal people kind of go, I'm really glad to be here, but gee, I hope I don't screw up. And I think that's what that experience was. Since then, I look back on it now. And, of course, now being a sort of a senior member of a cast rather than a newbie, you know, I find myself going, well, here we go to the New York Times performance. Okay, let's have a good time. And, of course, in those days, I was terrified that the New York Times was going to hate me. I mean, it's a, fa- you know, it's a fact of the world. The New York Times will come and review you. And, you know, what is it, you know? Does it serve you to get yourself all bent out of shape? No, you might as well just you know, enjoy the ride because it's going to happen whether you like it or not. It's like you know inoculations or something. So uh, anyway, I think that's the difference. Here we are. I have a few more years under my belt, and I can sort of take it in stride. And I really enjoy the process. As you hear, I, I enjoy previews and rewrites and all that, and that's just a function of experience. I think we just sort of know I've been here before, and it's all right. You know, It'll be all right. And is it correct that that's the show in which you met your wife, Carolee Carmella? Was she well, in I that m- show at some point? She was in the ensemble of that mm. show, and she actually gave notice before we opened to do the national tour of chess, to play uh-huh. the lead in chess. Um, but I really didn't pay much attention to that girl, <laughs> that redheaded girl. But um, Jim Naughton, whose his dressing was sort of like the green room for the theater, there was a picture of, like, Carolee and... I think her name was Jackie Maltby and Jim. It was a scene uh, from the show in a rehearsal, tech rehearsal, and he took a picture. So I was in his dressing room every night, you know, six days a week, eight shows a week, you know, for a year. And I would stand. It's a weird thing how you when you're doing a show, you have a real sort of route to the evening that sort of stays the same, mainly because you kind of find a route where you're not in someone else's way, and that sort of becomes your route. And I found myself every night standing in front of Carolee's picture. And I would kind of go, oh, yeah, that's that girl. So anyway, and I would talk about it. Eh, you can believe that punchline didn't work. And then the next night you'd be there, oh, yeah, who's that girl again? And I, you know, I looked at her picture for a year. And a year after that, we ended up doing a show at Goodspeed. We played opposite each other. And, uh, of course, I was like, oh, yeah, that's that girl. And even at the beginning, I was kind of like, oh, yeah, there's that girl. But it wasn't until we got into rehearsal and we started goofing around with each other that – uh, that you really got, really got to know her as more than click. just that girl. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And that would have been Arthur the Musical. Arthur think, the Musical, yeah. 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 Well, your next show, it was Anna Karenina. And it was Another a, sweeping historical epic. That's right. And uh, and yet, though, it was uh, I played uh, Levin... And Levin, it's sort of, it's sort of kind of another character role in a way. You know, I've had, I've played a lot of, I've played authors, I've played some leading men, but I've played a lot of character men along the way too, and uh, I really enjoyed it. It was fun. It was funny and touching and sweet. I played opposite Melissa Errico, and um, it was really, it was beautiful. It was a really beautiful show. It didn't quite, you know, have a life, but uh, it was quite lovely actually. It was Anne Crum. And I'm forgetting other people because I'm an old man. But Ann Crumb played Anna. Well, let's leap ahead a few couple of years to Passion, a new Stephen Sondheim musical, something that pretty much 
any musical theater actor would would kill to be a part of. Um, can you talk a little about the creation of Passion? Because it certainly was not a a conventional uh, musical comedy by by any stretch. Um, well, they had done a workshop before I came on board. Uh, so, if, and I don't know how many cast members changed from one to the, the Broadway production, but when they asked me if I wanted to come in and audition, I was, I was, of course, I wanted to, and I, you know, it's based on a, it's based on a novella, and a foreign film, and um, I read the one and I watched the other, and I was again taken with the character, you know, and uh, I don't know, it was one of those things that I really wanted to be part of. The moment I saw, I actually auditioned for it. I saw the, the the artwork for it first in the New York Times, which had that sort of the shape of the woman's back, you know. Hmm. Uh, it was very very sexy ad, and I was like, "Oh, that looks like a cool show. I'd like to be in that show." And then the audition came, um, and by that point, they all knew me. I don't know how that happened, but they all knew me, James and Steve, and I had done a, a, a lot of people movie. saw City of Angels. Greg, was that after City of Angels? <laughs> yes. It okay, was. there you go. And then, uh, but and then uh, Scott, Scott, uh, the big movie producer, Scott Rudin. Scott Rudin. I had done a, a couple movies for him, and I, I, I believe he also was interested in me doing it. He thought it'd be good, and so I auditioned. I got it. I, I, you know, practiced. I practiced before I went in. You know, it's it's again, it's a strange part. It's a period piece. It's something that uh, I like that kind of challenge. I like to tackle something that's kind of far from myself like that and find common points in the character to myself and the differences. Uh, as well as I like doing Billy Crocker. You know, I like being goofy and silly on stage. But that kind of part that's really far from me, like Dr. Manette, uh, I really, really enjoy the challenge. Mm-hmm. I really embrace it. Well, you grew up listening to Gypsy, which was Stephen Sondheim's lyrics. That is music. It was Julie Stein's music. Yeah. This was a very different sort of Stephen Sondheim. Uh, how was that, getting into that type of Sondheim as opposed to the musical theater type, you know, Gypsy, that type? Well, it, the, thing with, the thing with that kind of writing it, that he wrote for, for Passion is it really is like a musicalized scene as opposed to doing a number. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, you know, those are the two approaches I take. You know, am I doing a number or is it just scene? And um, so that's what passion was for me. They were, it was all an extension. It could have been a movie. It could have been a play. It could have been, you know, whatever. And which is why I thought it filmed so well when they finally did the film version. I mean, it was written in a way that can be captured by film beautifully. So many times, you know, we've seen musical... Uh, musicals that are are videotaped, you know, not 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 like feature film movies, but sort of the PBS filming. Yeah, and they just don't seem to land, do they? Even though you have three cameras and you have brilliant directors, it's always kind of like you're not you're trying to catch something that's you're not catching the magic that was in the theater. Well, but it's know? also that the performances are scaled for the house, not for the camera. That's true, but you know, if you have experienced actors and you can you can. Um, Tell them, okay, listen, we got this camera angle, we got that camera angle, you know, let's pay attention to that and maybe we could be caught by the camera. And certain shows just don't. They're just too large. They just, Mm. you know, it's a very theatrical experience. Mm. And uh, his work was captured beautifully, I thought. Steve's and James's work was captured beautifully, but again, it was extended. They were like, there was scenes, they were scenes like from from a foreign film as opposed to, you know, 
whatever, a Julie Stein show, you know, with Razzmatazz, which a lot of people, you know, that's sort of the, the whole, I think, controversy with that show is sort of this mood piece. And do you buy into the mood? And are you a real romantic? Or do you want a little more, you know, oomph in your Broadway musical? But uh, the, the final result was, I think, quite beautiful. Well, a couple of years after that, 1776, the revival, where you got to play the South Carolina signer of the Declaration of Independence, Edward Rutledge, who was the one that made them take out the uh, the references to slavery, and uh, was a, a you know a pivotal scene toward the end of end of the show. How did 1776 come about for you, and and how did you interpret Rutledge? Well, that came about uh, where uh, there was another actor who actually was supposed to do it, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, he did something else. He got another job that he wanted to do instead, and so they called me and they said, hey, we'd like to offer it to you, and I was so happy because I really wanted to play that part. I, Again, it's an interesting character. It's a, you know, it's kind of edgy. It's kind of different. It's kind of dark, and I was thinking this would be a character I'd like to explore and see what it's like. Also, it's, it's, it's such an amazing experience to be on stage with those you know, how many men just, and you got, and Scott Ellis was wonderful. He said, listen, you know, we're going to put you all on stage. I'm not going to block you, you know, in, in the sort of the Congress scenes. I'm not going to block you. Just let's do the dialogue. Just, you know, if you, for some reason your cross is really in the way, then I'll tell you not to be there. But I actually hope you're kind of in the way times, you know. I want to have this sense of like we're almost filming like something that's, you know, really happening before us. And so we had a blast. We got to goof around, and you got to cross up stage, and you got to talk to somebody while someone's talking downstage, and they're the ones with the actual lines. And it was very environmental for us. It was cool. We really liked doing it, you know. Um, And because of that, you were able to sort of like, you know, create your character and just take it on a journey every night. So how did I work on that? Well, you know, I, I just... It, that was one of those performances that really uh, was created by my walking cane and my my costumes. And the moment you put on a vest and a tight jacket and you have a walking cane, all of a sudden this sort of, you know, very well put together sort of, you know, um, a man who thinks he's better than everybody else sort of starts to come to life. Well, you were playing a real person, not a, fict- a fictional character. So that's that's true. Did you go to the library? Did you read? read oh, up about of course Rutledge I did. Yeah, to learn I mean, more about the and man? we all got to learn. Yeah, we all got to read about you know each of these men and their histories, and and they all seemed to be like brothers of people. And they, you know, if they didn't get to go, their brother would have to go, or their cousin would go, or their father would go, because you know there was more than one convention, and there were things going on in their lives. You know, they had to run their farms. You know brings up the whole issue of term limits and maybe we should have term limits in this this world you know but uh, that's just my political leanings but I just think uh, it was it was great to play real people but you use the knowledge that you learn about these people as places to start maybe a little something you want to use and bring to the stage but but you don't you know, you don't want to get caught up in saying I have to do some I have to bring this guy to life. The only couple of people who really had a responsibility to do that were the people like who played Ben Franklin, John Adams, and Tom Jefferson. Um I remember, you know, those guys were really dealing with, well, I have to look a certain way and we all have sort of this idea from so many movies that have come out, you know, how do these guys behave and what I have to sort of match up with the expectations of these characters. And of course, school kids knew about Ben Franklin and Tom Jefferson. Probably most school kids didn't know about Edward Rutledge, so you didn't have any expectations really that you had to live up to. Exactly, exactly. 
But Rutledge also, you, you're perhaps being modest about saying the costume defined at the history helped you. You had a bravura song. Oh yeah, it's a great piece of great piece of writing. How much did that seven minute showcase inform the rest of what you did? Well, it has to because it's really the largest chunk of information you get from the author, you know, and uh, and it it did. It was there, but at the same time, it had to be sort of the you couldn't play that color all night long. It had to be the final, you know anvil strike of his performance of his you know of his presence in the convention but obviously yeah that's the place you start from i mean whenever you do a role there are there are either moments of of the character or a moment or a monologue that somehow even though i've been talking about you you try to build a character i like to do characters that are sort of different from me but there has to be a moment in the script that you kind of that's sort of like your aha moment that you can say this is my starting point i know who this person is at this moment and then you try to string together other similar uh, you know uh, opinions you know s- similar feelings about other moments in the play and that's how you create an entire performance but we should say the song is Molasses to Rum is what we're talking about. That's that right. Song, that it song, is yeah. Molasses yeah. to Rum. And yeah. that your character is kind of the la- almost the last holdout for signing, and North Carolina is always deferring to South Carolina. Exactly. And your character and John Adams are having this ongoing battle over, over That's approval. That's yeah. true. The, 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 the two real problems in that play are you – know, the, the problem voters is the, the Carolinian block and then the actual Pennsylvania vote, which, of course, you know, the amazing thing about that show, I'm sure you guys will agree, is that we all know how it comes, you know, how it turns out. And you sit there and you watch that show and you go, I can't, you're are totally. Are going to get it done? Are they going to get it done? Because <laughs> there's a big calendar on the wall and it's July 3rd and they haven't figured out how to get their votes all in line. It's really an amazing show. Well, well, there's something interesting about the structure of 1776 as well, because as the show progresses, it moves to almost being a play with songs because it's so front-loaded with the music. And so in that sense, there's there's the feeling of a play for, for significant swaths of it. It's interesting that one of your subsequent credits is the one play that we found on your your resume, Thief River, which you did at Signature Theater, uh, Lee Blessing's play. Mm-hmm. You've certainly done shows where you don't do done material where you don't sing on TV and on film how did this come to be really the well, one there, play actually there's we, another play seen. there uh, that I see called Flight which was a, a play about uh, Charles Lindbergh uh, Thief River was one of those things that you know out of the blue you know your agent says hey they'd like to see you for this and uh, Mark Lamos I didn't know Lee at the time but I did know Mark Lamos and uh, I was very anxious to work with him and um, I loved the play. I loved the structure of the play. Um, I don't. Most people don't know that, but uh, the play has to do with uh, th- two men and their relationship through three periods of their life. So you each their each each role is played by three different men. And so uh, I was fascinated by that structure and by what that how you could explore a relationship that way. And so. Uh, that's what attracted me. The piece did. When I went in there, they said, hey, you're good. I was like, oh, thank you. <laughs> and so I did the piece. And uh, that's, you know, it's the, you know, actors say this all the time. It's the material that, that attracts you. And I was attracted by the material. But is is doing dramatic work separate from musical work something that appeals to you? And do you have a sometimes perhaps a challenge because people see you as this 
great musical comedy stalwart. Yes. <laughs> in, in a word, yes. Uh and it's just one of those things in, in, in life. I mean, I've done casting myself over the years, and it's funny how you find yourself thinking, now, who could play that part? Who could play that part? And you kind of think of, like, the last person. Like, if I'm looking for a comedic leading man, you find yourself thinking, you know, of whoever did the comedic leading man performance you saw last, you know, as opposed to there are many, many, many people who could play this part, but you just, it's funny how... You know, it just doesn't come to mind. And I think that's kind of what it is, you know. Um, I think, uh, you know, there's all there's all, all other sorts of reasons for that. But I think the bottom line is who's sort of in the front of people's minds when it comes time to casting things. But, yeah, and so what you do is you just try to just be, you know, slow and steady. And when someone says, do you really want to go in and audition for this play? And I'll go, yeah, sure I do. I, don't, I have no problem with that. And... Uh, you know, a lot of times you surprise your agents or your, the directors, and they'll say, I didn't know you want to do this. And I'm like, of course, this is what I like to do. This is, you know, I also like a challenge. If I was just doing the same old thing over and over again, it would be pretty boring. What 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 do you specifically look for? You say you have to be interested in, in, the, in the character, interested in the role. Is there a specific something you're looking for? Or is it, does it just hit you when you, when you read it? read a script? Um, well, there's one of two things, either the part itself or the piece itself. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's a, sometimes when you, you look at something that's got a great part and you probably are looking at something that's not a very good piece. You know, somebody overwrites, <laughs> over, you know, heavily writes a certain role. It's a, it's a very tough, tough, uh, it's a, the rare piece I find that then the whole piece can be an exciting evening. But I, I find that um, I look... You know, you just sit down and you read it. It's that whole thing. I, I think I'm, I'm thinking back on some interview I read once about, oh, my God, who read, who said this? And they said the first reading of, the, of a new piece that you're looking at and considering is your most important read. It, you know, read, he called it. You don't, don't do it quickly on the train while you're going to another, you know, event or something. Let it, let it you know, read it and let it and respond to it and let it wash over you. Because that's your only time it's going to be the first time you read it. And that's the time when you should decide, do I want to do this or don't I want to do this? You know. And any time I've decided to do something that I didn't really want to do but I sort of thought I should do, I've really regretted it. You know, I did it for money or I did it for a career move and the career move doesn't happen anyway. Do something because it washes over you in a certain way that makes you say, I'd like to be a part of this. So that bears the inevitable question. What appealed to you about Reefer Madness? (laughs) (laughs) These guys... Well, you know, the original piece is just... The original movie is just absolutely crazy. And they found such a zany way of musicalizing it. And I thought it would also be fun to have, you know, Greg Edelman, who's Mr. Middle Western straight-laced person, um, in a crazy show like that, that I just thought it would be funny to... Tell people, yeah, I'm in Reefer Madness. <laughs> and what was the response as you ran into You're in people? Reefer Madness? I was like, yeah, that's right. And also, again, it was a great character. I played sort of like this moderator guy of the evening who was sort of like the forewarning, foreboding, you know, voice of uh, of every adult who's ever warned people about, you know, warned kids about doing naughty things. And I thought that was pretty, pretty damn funny. So that's why I did that. I enjoyed it. No end. It was good. 
Well, a more typical music, we just mentioned it very briefly early on, was Wonderful Town. A couple of years ago with Donna Murphy, you, know, you played Robert Baker. Tell us a little bit more about working with Donna and working with Kathleen Marshall as the director and the choreographer of the show. Well, both of those women I've, I've worked with quite a bit. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I did uh, 1776 with Kathleen, and I remember the day we blocked Molasses to Rum, I swear to God, she was like, and then you're going to walk around here, and you're going to walk around all these people, and then you're going to stand up on the chair and then stand on the table. And I remember I was like, you know, giddy as a schoolgirl, going, I get to stand on the table. Oh, man, this is great. So, uh, And I was like, I love you, Kathleen. And so I enjoyed working with her back then, and, of course, working with her on Wonderful Town was was just great. I mean, she's so she's got such a great spirit. She's such a great choreographer, you know. It's it's wonderful working with her. Donna and I have worked together numerous times. We we did uh, Wonderful Town. We did Passion. Uh, we did uh, this TV show called Hack, where I played her her boyfriend slash fiance, and uh, we we did Spider Man Two together. You know, we've done a lot of stuff together. Um, I love working with her. You know, she she's so smart. And she just, like, wants to figure it all out. She's a very unique artist. And uh, I just love working with her. She's also very sweet and very generous. And I know her husband from City of Angels. So it's a little got a little bit of that sort of, you know, working with family because we all know each other. Does it make a difference to you as an actor if you don't, pretend, don't, don't mention names, if you don't particularly like the person you're appearing opposite, but you have to appear with that person? Does that make a difference in your performance? It, it, depe- it depends why I don't like that person. Uh-huh. Um, it's funny, you know, actors have this talk all the time. Would you rather work with somebody who's not so talented but you really like them, or would you rather work with somebody who's really talented but they're, you know, a real pain in the fanny? And you kind of go, I think, and every time you think you have the answer, you kind of <laughs> stop back and, you know, step back because, you know, oh, I don't want to commit myself because that's a really tough question. But um, anyway, <laughs> I'm, tell- I'm telling you a little too much about the actor's inner mind. But, uh, you know, sometimes sometimes you can have somebody who you really have trouble with off stage, but you get on stage with them, and either they're perfect for the role or they're so talented, you just say, you know what, That's I'm here to do the work. I don't have to, you know, marry them. You know, it's a certain chemistry. Then, if you if you like the person and they're also talented, that's probably the best of both worlds. That's an amazing. That's amazing when that happens. Right now, I'm working on a a Broadway workshop uh, of a new musical uh, based on "Please Don't Eat the Daisies," and I'm working with Leah Thompson. And uh, you know, everybody knows Leah from like Back to the Future and all that. And she's so wonderful, and we seem to get along so well that it actually only helps the chemistry of the the piece and so well, I'm going I'm having one of those good experiences now where you actually like the person and they're really talented so that's good well we talked earlier about your your songwriting is there anything else that you want to do that you haven't done whether as an actor as a songwriter as, as anything right as a great yeah American I've novel? been I've been for years now people have been talking to me about directing and mm-hmm. I really want to I seriously want to direct and I think for years I was kind of shy about it you know I'm a midwestern boy I have a tendency to be a little deferential but as I'm getting older and I you know I care less what people think about me I, I'm letting my own opinions you know formulate and uh, I'm really ready to direct so there's a job out there. Give me a call. Yeah. People listening, Greg Edelman, the director. 1-800-GREG-EDELMAN. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm, I'm really excited to do that. And um, that's a, it's a challenge I'm looking forward to embracing. Well, currently on the same stage that you appeared on in Wonderful Town, the Al Hirschfeld Theater, in A Tale of Two Cities, Greg, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank at you. Center. Thank you.
Thanks, Greg. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John von Susten for the Onstage Center. That is a wrap, and thank you. The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.